Tonight, Matthew chapter 24, this is our September prophecy update. We will be having another one of these in November. We're getting back to our every other month uh, schedule. So November right after Thanksgiving Eve, and then we'll be back and we'll have another one in January, and that'll be sort of our schedule moving into 2023. But let's pray tonight. Lord, we thank you that you are the wonder-working God that you are a God who keeps your promises. And Lord, that you have given us in your word these prophecies that indicate to us, that give us insight into the day and age and the time in which we are living. So I pray tonight that you would minister your word to our hearts, that you would stir us up, that you would encourage us, Lord, we remind ourselves that these prophecy updates are not to create within us a sense of escapism, but that of activism as we realize and understand that we are the generation that you have chosen to have on planet Earth at this particular time in history that we believe is leading up to and getting very close to your coming again. So we give you this time tonight, ask that you be glorified in it, in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you like doing puzzles? Okay, puzzle people here. I don't have the patience for puzzles, I'm just being honest with you. I don't enjoy them very much, but my wife loves them. And so every year at the holidays, she's breaking out. She goes and gets herself a really great puzzle. Every time we go on vacation, she breaks out a puzzle. And we were, oh, sometime last year, we were um, at a celebration, a 50-year wedding anniversary celebration that was at the Oceanside Senior Center. And as we were walking out, there was a table there at the senior center that had these puzzles for loan. And so we walked up to the table. My wife saw it, and we walked up to the table, and she saw this one that looked just really, really cool. And she likes the puzzles that are big, lots of pieces, super hard, and that's what this one was like. And so we decided to to borrow it. Didn't think about that it was probably for the people involved who were part of the senior center, but and if you're a part of that, I apologize now that we took that. But um, you know, we didn't think about it at the time. We thought, hey, we live here in Oceanside, and you know, let's we'll borrow it and we'll we'll bring it back. And so a couple days later, she gets to work on it. And she's working on it for a couple days, and and then she gets to the end, and it's missing one piece. Yeah. How frustrating is that, right? to be missing a piece of the puzzle. Well, listen, when it comes to the puzzle that we call Bible prophecy, there's not a single piece missing. There is nothing that needs to yet happen that has been declared and prophesied by the Lord that, would, that there's nothing that, that still needs to be in place leading up to his return for his church. There's nothing that was declared would happen that needs to happen. 
Now, when we're talking about the puzzle pieces, we could talk about how the nation of Israel was reborn in 1948. That was something that was prophesied in the Old Testament, and that is something that had never, ever happened before or since in the history of the nations of the world, where there was a nation that ceased to exist for 2,000 years that was suddenly reborn and brought back to life. But that happened in 1948 with the nation of Israel. It was a miracle, and, and we could talk about that, but we've talked about that before. And here's something that you need to know. When it comes to Bible prophecy, Israel is always a major key in the subject of Bible prophecy. We could also talk about the alliance of Russia and the nation of Iran that's prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 38, how these two nations are going to lead a group of nations into battle against Israel in the last days. And that puzzle piece is also in place. And we've talked about that before as well. We could talk about the rise of globalism around the world. And how many leaders in the nations of the world are calling for the world to become more unified and how globalism is on the rise and how that puzzle piece is also uh, coming together. And the Bible says that's exactly what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes into play and he sets up his one world governmental system during the tribulation time. But we've talked about that as well. We also have talked about how technology is in place for our world to now go to a cashless society. And there is becoming an overwhelming growth in the interest of us he- heading in that direction. And that also is going to happen when the Antichrist comes into play. We talked about that in uh, last year in Revelation chapter 13 during that prophecy update. We could talk about how Israel is going to be a thorn in the side of the nations of the world. That Zechariah said in the last days that Israel would be a cup of trembling to the other nations, but we've talked about that in past prophecy updates as well. We could talk about how there are over 300 prophecies concerning the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that have already been fulfilled, which lets us know if those prophecies have been fulfilled, then the prophecies of his second coming and the rapture of the church are things that we can also know are going to happen in God's timing. We could talk about all of that. But here's what I want to do tonight. I want us to consider what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 24 concerning what would be happening in the days leading up to his return. So look at Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 3. It says this. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So right there we get the context of what Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 is about. The context is what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now notice how Jesus answers verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. In other words, I don't want you to be confused about this. That's where we understand that. For many will come in my name, saying that I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. 
For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, if you like to write in your Bible, you could circle that word sorrow, and you could put next to it birth pains. Because that's literally how that is translated. And the idea is this. We all know that what happens to a woman who is pregnant when she's getting closer to the time that she's going to give birth to that baby, the birth pains, the contractions, they suddenly become more frequent and they become more intense. And that's what Jesus is saying about these things that as in the time leading up to his coming, and he's talking really about the time that's during the tribulation time, it's prior to his second coming, that these things that he mentions here are going to be get, become a much more intense. But right now, as we see these things happening, these are the birth pains. And when it comes to the things that Jesus is describing here, Oftentimes, we look at these and go, these have always been problems in the world. I mean, there's always been false Christs. There's always been uh, false religions. There's always been wars and rumors of war. There's always been famines and diseases and earthquakes in various places. But what Jesus is saying is in the last days, the, lead, the days leading up to his return, that there will be an increase. Let's consider a couple of these. Let's take famine. According to the new UN study, 750,000 people right now are on the front line of famine and starvation. 750,000 people. The World Food Program tells us that there is an all-time high of 49 million people in 46 countries at risk of succumbing to famine or famine-like conditions. And at the same time, a total of 276 million people are facing acute food insecurity in 81 countries. It is a major growing problem. Or let's talk about war. Do you realize that wars in the past 90 years have killed more people than during the previous 500 years combined? And an estimated 203 million people were killed by wars in just the 20th century alone. 203 million people. And that's scary to think about, that during the tribulation time, those numbers are going to grow exceedingly. Death by war, famine, and disease. Because we're told in the book of Revelation, there in chapter 6, that after the opening of the fourth seal, a fourth, think about this, a fourth of the world's population is going to be killed. Now today, the world's population is 8 billion people. So that's 2 billion people who are going to die during that time. And the Bible says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. So right now we are experiencing the birth pains. And in those days, the days of the tribulation, though, it's going to be all-out labor. It's going to be intense, and it's going to be horrific. But here's what I want to focus on tonight. Skip down to verse 36. Jesus says, But of that day and hour, 
No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus said that the days leading up to his return were going to be like the days of Noah. And in Luke chapter 17, he adds this. He says, and they're also going to be like the days of Lot. Let me read this to you. This is Luke 17, verse 26. It should be on the screen. And as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate and drank and married wives, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. And likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate and drank, and they bought and sold, and they planted and they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, and it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, even so will it be in the the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus says it's going to be like the days of Noah and it's going to be like the days of Lot. What was the central issue in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot? The central issue was this. It was defiance against God. In the time of Noah, it was worldwide. Worldwide, people had pushed God out of their culture and out of their lives so that only one family, the family of Noah, think about that. Only one family, the family of Noah, is spared. It's heavy. In the days of Lot, it was two cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what Jesus is saying. In both cases, they were just going about life as normal. No concern for God. No concern for anything else. They're just doing business as usual. They're eating, they're drinking, they're partying, they're marrying, they're having wedding celebrations. Like, hey, there's no concern. There's no problem. There was nothing in their eyes to be concerned about. Now, it's interesting. A lot of people think the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. But that's just a symptom of the root issue, which was defiance. See, we're told in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, that the root issue of the sin of of Sodom was pride. It was their pride of saying, we don't need God. We can do it our own way. We can have our own morals. And the result of that was rampant and gross homosexuality. And a close study of Genesis chapter 6 reveals the defiance in the days of Noah resulted in the following things. It says in Genesis chapter 6 that the thoughts and intents of men were only evil continually. That was first. Think about that. All they could think about was just evil. The thought and intent of the heart of people in the day of Noah was just evil. Wickedness. 
And also it talks about there in Genesis chapter 6 that there was an increase in violence because the, the thought and intents of their heart was only evil and wickedness. And there was growing uh, sexual immorality. And it was so bad in the day of Noah that, that God says, my spirit can no longer strive with man. I'm going to destroy the world. And I'm going to start over with Noah and his family. And God was basically doing a similar thing with Sodom and Gomorrah and their wickedness was so great that God said they needed to be destroyed so that they couldn't affect any of the other people around them by their wickedness. So you could say about Noah and Lot that both of them were last days believers. Noah lived right up into the time of the last day of planet earth as they knew it at that time lot lived right up into the last day of those two cities that were destroyed and as we close tonight i want to consider both of these men and what we can learn from them about being last days believers but the point that i'm making is this is jesus said the last days would be like the days of lot and like the days of Noah. So here's the question that I want us to consider tonight. Are the days that we're living in, that we living in, like the days of Noah, and like the days of Lot? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's consider that for a minute. I would say this. At the very least, we're experiencing the birth pains of a culture that is moving more and more in our defiance against God. You know, the UK and Canada are both considered today to be post-Christian countries, post-Christian nations. And it's historians say that America is always, we're always running about 10 years behind the UK and behind Canada. So if we're not there yet, we definitely are heading in that direction. But how did we get here? Well, consider the history of the Western world. Throughout the Middle Ages, the Western world at least had an understanding of objective truth. The existence of God was taken for granted, which provided a basis for belief of the absolute values of right and wrong. During the Middle Ages, the majority of people believed in God and they believed in the Bible. And then during the time of the Reformation in the 15 and 1600s, that truth was kind of set on fire. But by the time we get to the 1800s, the secular thinking of the Enlightenment period or what's been called the age of reason, radiated from France like a force field all the way across Europe and then into the new worlds. And many of the Enlightenment thinkers could not only totally shake off their belief in the existence of God. They still believed but God, but they described him as a God who was disinterested and uninvolved with the world. We call that today deism. It's the idea that God made us and just kind of left us alone to kind of do what he, we wanted to do. That was the popular thinking during the Enlightenment period. And they taught that humans were the true moral force in the universe. 
And the rising tide of humanistic secularism was introduced into our American educational system by a guy by the name of John Dewey. Dewey was a shy, bookish educator who hailed from Vermont, and Dewey's core principle was the rejection of absolute unchangeable truth. This humanistic philosophy that Dewey was really the foundational proponent of really became the pervasive thought in American schools, especially at the graduate level. And I think you could say this, the rest is history. That's how we've kind of got to where we are at today. And you could sum up, I think, the defiance of God and digression, digression of the Western world like this. We went from a time where the thinking was, it was impossible to not believe in God. Like everybody believed in God. That was the pervasive, you know, thought. And then we moved into a period where it was like possible to not believe that there was a God. It became possible. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe there isn't. Maybe that evolution thing is true. And now we are living in a day and age where the, it's becoming more and more prevalent that it's impossible to believe in God. And if you believe in God, and if you believe that the Bible is God's word, you are considered today to be weird, and in many places, even dangerous. That's the thinking, that they look at us and go, man, those, those fundamental Christians, they're, they're dangerous. But this, too, is part of the, the signs that Jesus said here in Matthew 24 would be happening in the last days when people were living in defiance against God. Look back at verse 9. He said this, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another, and then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. The defiance of God that is happening in our day, I think, is marked by three things that Jesus mentions here in these verses in Matthew chapter 24. And those three things I would describe as this is disdain, verses 9 and 10, deception, and distortion. That we are living in a culture, first of all, of disdain. We are living in the time, in the day and age, of what we call cancel culture, right? And that is something that is not going away. It is going to grow. If you think that this is just a a passing fad that kind of became popular during the pandemic, you are going to be sorely mistaken. This is only going to grow. And during the time when the Antichrist is in power, cancel culture will be at an all-time high. It will be in full force because if you do not, if you're still here, hopefully you won't be, but if you are still here and you don't get along with his plan, you are going to be canceled permanently, if you know what I mean, okay? Now that might be harder for us to imagine, living here in America where... You know, we think, man, it's not that bad. Sure, there's name calling and sure, you know, there's the silencing, but like nobody's getting killed. Well, did you know that this is already happening in other countries in the world, especially in places like Russia and China? 
Did you know that between 170 to 360 million people have been killed by their governments in the 20th century? Think how insane that is. In Russia alone, somewhere between 60 to 80 million people have been killed by their government in the 20th century. But with the rising tide of cancel culture here in the Western world, I think it's easy to see how we're moving in that direction. And it's a puzzle piece. It's a sign of the times that we... Even though we've never called it that, we've never, I think, looked at that. We think, oh, cancel culture. But that's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do when he comes into power. Notice how Jesus says there, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. The Greek word translated betray there is very important. It doesn't mean betrayal in the sense of, you know, saying negative things about a coworker so you can get the promotion instead of them. Nor does it mean betraying in terms of deceiving others or turning on someone who might be your friend and stabbing them in the back. The word he uses here is much more serious than that. He's talking about a betrayal in the sense of intentionally revealing or exposing something that is hidden. It's the same idea of betraying a secret. It's the very idea of what was happening prior to World War II when, when Jewish people were being, being identified by their neighbors to the Nazis. It's that type of betrayal that he's talking about here. So Jesus is describing a culture leading up to the end times that would be marked by people who actively root up, expose, and betray those around them. Now, I think we're living in a world that is becoming more and more like that. I read a story about a pastor by the name of Charles Hodges, who is the pastor of Highlands Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, Highlands is a large multicultural church that is actively involved in serving their community. They feed the poor, they volunteer in schools, they engage in taking care of the sick. During the pandemic, the Church of Highlands served thousands of people's meals. They made masks, they hosted blood drives, they helped other churches with their online services. Amazing church, doing amazing things. But one day, Pastor Hodges liked a post on social media from a conservative pundit. And a teacher at the local high school saw that he liked that and took offense to it. And so this high school English teacher living there in Birmingham saw what, what Pastor Hodges had done, it made her feel uncomfortable. So she created a Facebook post that addressed her discomfort, including an image of Hodges' name next to this notorious like, quote unquote, you know. It blew up. That little like on social media. You think that's like, like not a big deal? Oh, like that, you know, that little like on social media. Here's what happened. It turned into a big scandal. In less than two weeks, the Birmingham Housing Authority voted to cut ties with Pastor Hodges and the Church of the Highlands and no longer allowing the church to rent space for one of its campuses. The housing authority also cut ties. Now get this. 
This is during the pandemic. With Christ Health Center, a separate ministry founded by the Church of the Highlands to provide free health services for residents of public housing. Now stop and think about that. A local government shut down a free clinic in the middle of a pandemic, all because of a like on social media. They said this, Pastor Hodge's views do not reflect those of the housing authority of Birmingham district or its residents. But that wasn't even the end. The Birmingham Board of Education also voted to cut ties with the Church of Highlands after the so-called scandal. And for several years, the church had been renting two high schools for two of their, their additional campuses. They rented these two high school auditoriums on Sunday morning, and they were paying, get this, more than $800,000 a year for those rental spaces to the school district, and they cut them immediately. How crazy is that? Here locally. It's not just in Alabama. Remember, I hope I don't get in trouble for sharing this, but you, you remember, because um, I didn't ask permission, but uh, you'll understand in a minute, but remember during Pride Month when the Vista City Hall was flying the rainbow flag? Remember that? I think they were flying it instead of the American flag. I mean, it was crazy. Another big building. and Well, one of our worship leaders, the handsome bald guy that was leading worship tonight, <laughs> he wrote a very nice letter to our city council letting him know that he, and it wasn't a mean letter, it was a nice letter, letting him know that he didn't think that was right and he didn't approve. And somebody in the, that works for our city government posted that on Facebook and started accusing Joe of being homophobic and a hater and, and this type of thing. Trying to slander him and slam him, slam him on, on social media. Guys, that's the world that we're living in today, and it's only going to get worse. Our society preaches tolerance, but in reality, we are becoming more intolerant and polarized by the day. And if you don't agree with what is being described by the popular, quote-unquote, popular opinion, it's not really the popular opinion. They just have the loudest voices and a lot of money. It's not the popular opinion. But if you do not agree with them and get in line, you can expect to be canceled. You can lose friends. You might lose your, lose your livelihood. And it might even get to the point where people are losing their lives. That's the world that we are living in today. A culture that is living in defiance of God becomes a culture of disdain. It also becomes a culture of deception. Look what Jesus said in verse 11. He said that false teachers would be on the rise. And we see young people leaving the church and the faith today in record numbers. We live in an age of the, they call them the nuns. Young people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. We've all heard about the term deconstruction. People deconstructing their faith. And we've seen popular Christian musicians, popular Christian leaders, and even pastors who have completely denounced their faith. One of the most noteworthy 
say, young mega church pastor by the name of Joshua Harris. Some of you might remember his name because when you were younger, he wrote a book that, that was entitled, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It sold millions and millions of copies. Well, Harris left his church, divorced his wife, and denounced the faith. And then he had the audacity to post online that he was offering a class you had to pay for it, but he was, and it was quite expensive. He was offering a class to help young people deconstruct from the faith. How crazy is that? Popular Christian author, former pastor, conference speaker, denouncing, divorcing his wife, denouncing his faith. And then he's trying to help young people also deconstruct and denounce their faith. I do not want to be him on judgment day. I pray for him, but man. Because remember, remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you cause someone to stumble, little one to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone. Now, if you don't know what that is, a millstone was like a gigantic, you know, over my head and probably as wide as my arm, solid stone rock that they would use to grind grain. Jesus said, it'd be better for, for that thing to be attached to his neck and he's thrown into the ocean. You, you know what happens? That, that's thrown in your neck, thrown in the ocean. You know what happens? You go straight to the bottom, right? And you're not getting back up. That's what Jesus said about that. And as grieving as this is, it shouldn't surprise us because we're told that this would be happening in the last days. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul wrote this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Note that. Not just false teaching, deceiving spirits. And these are doctrines of demons. They're demonic in their influence, speaking lies in a spot, hypocrisy and having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. What that means is that you, you get to the point, your conscience, you don't feel anymore. You have no conviction anymore. That's, that's how that happens when somebody who is used to be a proclaimer of the truth is now offering to teach people how to deconstruct and denounce their faith, that's somebody who has begun, become past feeling. Conscience seared with a hot iron. Paul would also say in 2 Timothy 2, preach the word. Aren't you glad we preach the word here? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Guys, we are living in that time right now. The last thing that I want to touch on before we consider Noah and Lot that we can learn and what we can learn from them as being last days believers, is defiance against God that has led to a culture of disdain and a culture of deception also leads to a culture of distortion. Notice Jesus says there in verse 12, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And the idea is that our love for God and our love for one another will be growing cold. 
And when that happens, we start to have a distorted view of life, a distorted view of marriage, a distorted view of sexuality, and what we're seeing today, a distorted view of gender. Now listen, when it comes to life, the Bible is very, very clear on how God views life. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. This is God's view of life. We have been created in his image. We have been created to be image bearers of God. That's how much God values us. We are human beings are uniquely created by God to live in relationships, first with him and then with each other. We are uniquely created by God with a moral compass. The animal kingdom doesn't have a moral compass. You know, I walk my dog almost every single day, and if I let him, he would poop on my neighbor's lawn all every single time he wants to he's always trying to go up there i was like get off the grass you know he has no moral compass it's like no idea i mean i and i'm trying to teach him like hey we don't do that but every single time he's trying to poop on their grass he's been neutered but if he wasn't and he got out I mean, he'd be trying to hook up with all the female dogs in the neighborhood, okay? And if your dog did get out and spent the week hooking up with the other female dogs, you know, in the neighborhood, so all the little female dogs in your neighborhood get pregnant, are you like, you know, angry at your dog? He's, no, it's a dog. It's what they do, right? Now, if your son did that, that would be another story, right? I'd be like, okay, man, we got some issues here, you know. Animals, they don't have that moral compass. We have been made uniquely by God with that moral compass. The Bible is also very clear about when life begins, that it begins with conception. Psalm 139, we read, For you formed in my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The Bible is clear on when life begins. Other verses in the Bible that support the value of the unborn life. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Isaiah said in Isaiah 44, As your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. And Paul talked about in Galatians 1, verse 15, that God had set him apart before he was even born. But our culture has distorted that. Our culture wants to say, that's not a baby. That's just tissue. That's just a blob. And so because we have this total disregard for human life, 73 million abortions happen worldwide every single year. 73 million 
1.3 million babies are aborted in America every year. Now, praise God for the Supreme Court's ruling federally banning abortion, abortion on the federal level, and now it's up to the states. And there are states who have followed in that stance, places like Texas. But our governor, he's saying, hey, if Texas won't do it, we'll help you. Did you, have, did you guys see this? Can you put that side up? This, this, is, this is Newsom. Need an abortion? California is ready to help. Visit abortion.ca.gov. And then get this. He quotes the Bible. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. How crazy is that? And they're sending these, this billboard, these, these billboards to these other states. It's insane. I don't want to be him on Judgment Day either. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sights. Woe to them. Distortion about life. We're also seeing the distortion today of God's view of gender. There shouldn't be, though. There shouldn't be. It's very clear. God said again in Genesis chapter 1, he said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And it says, So God created man in his own image. In his image, God created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus believed that. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. There should be no distortion or confusion about gender. And I want you to notice this, friends. He says, he made them. We don't make ourselves. He made them. He makes us male and female. But we have distorted God's view of gender so that now in our school systems, we're letting kids decide what they want to be. If they want to be a boy or a girl. And they can choose at the earliest ages. This is, is happening in elementary schools. Now, and now we have you know, boys that are competing in girls' sports. And it's so unfair. I'm sure you heard about the Penn State swimmer who swam for a couple years on the men's team. He was actually really good. He took a year off, and he came back now calling himself a woman and wanted to swim on the female team, and he is dominating, winning by these huge margins. And I want you to look at this picture of him on the point. See how much bigger he is? How crazy is that? And, and notice how the girls, like one of them took second and they don't even want to stand by him, you know? It's like they're so appalled because of how unfair this is. It's crazy. And Penn State had the audacity 
And this surprised me. Gosh, this, this, this really, really surprised me that they had the audacity to nominate him Female Athlete of the Year. How crazy is that? Penn State. I thought they were more conservative there. My dad hauls from Pennsylvania. I thought, man, <sighs> girls are not happy, and rightfully so. They're having their dreams of college, you know, scholarships dashed, and men are generally bigger and stronger. Look at this other picture from, this is a basketball team, I think we have. Look how big that guy is. How crazy is that? But this is happening all over the place. And on top of that, now these men are in women's restrooms and locker rooms, and it's just not right. There's a teacher in Canada right now. The, 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 the picture was, I probably would have gotten in trouble. Somebody would have rebuked me for putting the picture up. But it's a teacher in Canada who is a man who came to school this year, now declaring to be a woman, and he's wearing these prosthetic breasts that are gigantic. And they're letting him do it. It's like obscene. It's like just absolute craziness. This is what happens, though, when a culture begins to live in defiance against God. Now, I will say this, though, and hear me on this. I feel really sorry for the people who have bought into this lie and into this delusion. I feel sorry for these little kids that are starting to question because of the ideology that's being, you know, fed down, you know, shoved down their throat. I don't disdain them. We need to love on them. We need to pray for them. And we and you need to know this. The transgender community is quickly becoming a group of people who is recording the most suicides among that group of people because they're confused and because they're hurting. And, but this is what happens when people live in defiance against God. It's a distortion of life, a distortion on gender, and a distor- distortion on marriage. Now Jesus went on to say this about marriage there in Mark chapter um, 10, verse 7. He says, for this reason a man, everybody say man, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Everybody say wife. Wife. And the two shall become one flesh. I'm looking out here. We're all adults. Do you realize this? Two men can't become one flesh physically. Two women can't become one flesh God made it where only a man and woman can become one flesh physically. To have that type of unity. But we live in a culture where homosexuality is now rampant, where same-sex marriage is now legalized, but this is a direct defiance against God and His Word. God made it very, very clear that marriage is between a man and a woman, and he made it very, very clear that there are distinct roles in in that marriage relationship that he calls a partnership. 
But because man is living in defiance against God and we're writing our own playbook as it relates to these type of things, it's a distorted playbook. And we see the hurt and confusion that it has caused. And Paul in the book of Romans, he outlines how this happens. Paul says it starts with ingratitude. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, he says this, Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice that. It starts with a failure to worship God. A failure to declare Him as being king, and we make ourselves the king, and we begin to pursue our own agendas, which then leads to idolatry. Paul describes it this way in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. The key phrase there is, the glory of the incorruptible God was made into the image of corruptible man. Because what happens is, we begin to make what we worship like ourselves when we are consumed with ourselves. And man has always been prone to worship himself. God makes us in his image, and then we want to make gods in our image, and we're twisting the picture. Because we're so focused on our wants and our needs and our desires, that takes center stage instead of God. So it starts with ingratitude, leads to idolatry, and then that leads to immorality. Paul continued in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. When mankind denies its Creator, we succumb to a lust-driven existence. How can I please myself? That's what Paul's describing. And then that immorality leads to iniquity. And he puts it this way in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. It's lesbianism. And likewise, also men leaving the natural use. Notice the term he uses there, natural, in both of those instances use of the woman, and burned in their lusts for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and having in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. In other words, everything gets twisted and taken to the extreme when we are living in defiance against God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, but Pastor Rob, I know several gay couples and they are just so sweet and they love each other and they're committed to one another. They're living in a you know, monogamous relationship with just that person who is their partner. And you know what? I know some gay couples like that as well. But hear me. That lifestyle, just like sex outside of marriage, just like adultery is in defiance against God. It's saying, God, you do not know what is best for me, so I am going to choose my own path. 
Lord, I don't think you got it right on this one, so I'm going to do it my way. Scripturally, you can't get around it. It's defiance against God. Now, having said that, I always like to bring this up when we talk about this subject. Is that same-sex attraction is a real struggle for some people. And because we are fallen men and women, because we have that sin gene inside of us, because of Adam, that we, we got from Adam, and that means all of us struggle with temptation, all of us struggle in different areas of our flesh, and for some people, their struggle is with same-sex attraction. And here's what we need to understand. The attraction is not sin. It's the acting upon it that becomes sin. In a similar way, a married man can have an attraction to a woman who is not his wife. He can see a pretty woman and think she's beautiful. That's not a sin. That's an attraction. It becomes a sin if he starts to dwell on it. That becomes lust. And if he starts to lust after her, then that can also, if he acts on it in a physical manner, or even just, you know, imagining in his mind, that becomes adultery. So all of us are having to navigate our way through sanctification and deal with our own tendencies toward the flesh. But defiance is when I say, I don't agree with what God said. And I want to sleep with others instead of my wife. Or I want to sleep with this person. Or I'm tired of being married to, you know, my wife or my husband. And, you know, it's just not working for me anymore. And so I'm going to divorce my spouse and pursue this other person. And that happens all the time. And unfortunately, even in the church. And it's living in defiance against God. And Jesus said, you know, it's because of the hardness of your hearts that you're divorcing one another. A hard heart is the epitome of defiance against God. And prevalent sexual immorality that we are seeing in our culture is a direct evidence of that, just like in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. So I think it's safe to say that we are indeed living in the days of Lot and Noah. So here's the question. Here's why I want to wrap this up. Pretty quickly. How are we then supposed to live? Both of these men give us examples. We'll start with Lot. He's the bad example. You don't want to be like Lot. Lot's been described as a saved soul but a wasted life. I think we'll see Lot in heaven because Peter calls him righteous. Righteous Lot. But I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to heaven by my skinny skin chin or however that saying goes you know (laughs) i don't want to barely make it i want to go in in abundance 
Lot saved soul, wasted life. What happened to Lot? Where did he go wrong? Lot was the nephew of Abraham, and when Abraham left Ur to go to the land that God was calling him to go to, Lot went with him. Early on in their journey, they end up in Egypt, and Egypt was the picture, the epitome at that time of the world in all of its immorality and all of its trappings, but God spared them in Egypt, and they were able to get out of Egypt, and they Actually, God ended up blessing them. Both of their herds, the herds of Lot, the herds of Abraham are growing. Their servants are growing. And it's getting to the point where both their herds and all their servants are too big. They're starting to have some disputes that Abraham says to Lot, we need to separate. And I'm going to let you pick. You go in the direction you want to go and I'll go in the opposite direction. And this is where Lot made his first mistake. Lot was attracted to the world because we're told in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, that Lot looked at the plains of Sodom and they reminded him of Egypt. They reminded him of the world. And he's like, that's where I want to go. That's the place where I want to to be. That's where I want to raise my family in that place that reminds me of Egypt. He had an attraction to the world. Now, both Jesus and Paul described the Christian life for believers as being in, that we're just supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We're living in it, but we're not attached to it. And the way that we're not attached to it is not by not being attracted to it. Paul said that we are to be realized that we are citizens of heaven. And so Jesus would say, because of that, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on this earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Paul would say in Romans 12, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Keep separate. So Lot, first of all, was attracted to the world. Secondly, Lot pitched his tet tent toward Sodom. He didn't just move to the plains, but he pitches his tent where it's like every morning he wakes up and he's looking out. Oh, Sodom. Oh, man. Can't, I love that place. His attraction because of that grew. And it always does. When you feed the flesh, you know what happens? Your flesh gets stronger. Your attraction gets stronger. Your flesh gets stronger and your spirit gets weaker. And Lot did what we often try to do, where we want to see how close to the world we can get without getting sucked into it. It's like a kid playing with fire. He wants to see how close he can get without getting burned. But you know what happens? He usually gets burned. And you usually get sucked in. And we end up finding ourselves in a place where we're trying to follow the trends of the world and we want to look like them and dress like them and talk like them. And pretty soon, we're just like them. And there's no distinction. I think one of the worst things that can happen to you is you're at work or you're with some friends and they say something like this to you. What? You're a Christian? I had no idea. I know people that's happened to. And they're like surprised out of their minds because there was nothing, you were so much like them, there was nothing about you that made them think that you were at all different. 
The third thing is Lot moves into Sodom. Um, and, I, and I don't have time to go into all these verses, so you can look up the references, but Genesis 14, 12, we, we see now he's living in the city. His family's in the city, and they end up being completely engulfed in the culture. And at one point in the story, Lot ends up in a place of leadership in the city. He's sitting in the gates. The gates was like city hall. He's a leader. And I don't know, maybe he got to the point where he was, gonna, he was trying to bring reform. Maybe. I don't know. Or maybe he just got so comfortable and so well-liked and so accepted that they're like, hey, you'd make a good leader. Why don't you run for office? And any, Whatever the point was is he ends up in that place. But living in the world took its toll on Lot, and it always does. We're told this in 2 Peter 7. The Lord says, and he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing of their lawless deeds. Note that, oppressed and tormented. That's what happens when you try to live as a Christian in the world. The fourth thing we see with Lot is that he neglected his family spiritually. When we get to Genesis 18 and God's going to destroy those two cities, Lot goes and he tries to warn his daughters and his son-in-laws that, hey, we got to get out of the city, and they don't even listen to him. They're like, you're crazy. Even his own wife ends up being destroyed. Lot makes it out with only his two daughters. And I can't tell you the number of stories, I don't have time to go into it, but where I have seen families who tried to live too close to the world and their families suffered greatly. Divorces, kids sucked into alcohol and drug addiction. Now that can happen. It can happen to people who are radically following Jesus as well. But I'll tell you this, it's a lot less common in those families. Lot's family was destroyed. So that was Lot. You don't want to be like him. But then we have Noah. Quickly, Noah, what are some things that we see with him? Noah, it says in Genesis 6, 8, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah sought to follow God and live for God. And because of that, the grace of God was upon him. God's favor, in other words, was upon him. I like what Pastor Chuck used to say. It's living your life where you're being under the spout, where the blessings are flowing out. That was Noah. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And because of that, we read in Hebrews chapter 11 that Noah walked by faith, believing in the word of God. God told him, Noah, I'm going to flood the earth. Now, here's what you don't understand. Maybe you don't know this. Did you know up in that time, it, it had never rained before? The way God watered the earth was from the ground up in those days. So imagine Noah. God's saying, I want you to build a big boat, like huge, like several football fields long. I want to put all these animals in it because I'm going to send water out of the sky. And, and Noah's like, that's, that's stupid. That's never happened before. Is that, is that even possible? He doesn't do that. He's like, okay, God said it. I'm believing it, and I'm going to act on it. He walked by faith, believing in the word of God, even though he didn't understand it completely. We're also told there that Noah moved with godly fear. There was a reverence. In other words, he took what God was saying was seriously, and he moved in obedience, and he starts building this boat that took him 120 years to build. 
And he's not backing down to the opposition. Talk about cancel culture. Can you imagine Noah? I think in the first year, Noah was like the circus in town. Let's go see what Noah's up to today, you know? Noah, what you doing? I'm building this big boat. Why? Because water's going to come out of the sky. Ha, ha, ha. First year, he was like the circus. For the next 119, he's like, that's the nut job. That's the crazy guy. That's the guy that's lost his mind. Only two, the next thing we see about Noah, though, is that Noah took care of his family. Because, you know, only two people in Lot's family were spared, but all of Noah's family was spared. They followed their dad in fear and reverence for God. And the last thing and final thing that we see about Noah is that he was a preacher of righteousness, which means he had a concern for others. And I want to end on this note, because when we talk about Bible prophecy, sometimes we as Christians can take this attitude where it's kind of like, man, Lord, I'm so glad you're coming to get me out of here and my friends out of here. Come quickly, Lord, and bring judgment. You know, and that can be our, our mindset. Like this world is just jacked up and, and it just needs to be judged. And so God, you know, bring it. That should not be our hearts. Because there's people that we know in our families, who are our neighbors, who are our coworkers, who if they don't give their life to Jesus, they're going to experience that judgment. And so we need to be preachers of righteousness. We need to be sharing the good news that there's hope. We need to be sharing that, hey, this world's getting nuts. It's getting crazy. It's getting so distorted. But Jesus loves humanity. And that's why he died for humanity. And the Lord wants us to share that message. So we want to be like Noah, not like Lot. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that in the midst of this world in which we are living that is indeed becoming so much like the days of Noah, the days of Lot. Lord, it can be very disheartening to us when we see it. But we realize it's part of the plan. It's part of you giving mankind over to pursue its lusts. And all the depravity that we see happening in our world today, we know it's just the result of men and women throughout this world who are thumbing their nose at you, living in defiance of who you are. But Lord, we don't want that to be us. And Lord, I I think all of us here on a Wednesday night, Lord, we know you. But I think, Lord, you would have us right now to just Search our hearts and ask ourselves, are we living more like Lot? Trying to just be so close to the world or are we living like Noah? 
Lord, do that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.